Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here. An honor, a privilege, a pleasure as always. Uh, Phone lines open because it is Freestyle Friday. What's up? 844-900-2825. 2825-844-900-BUCK. So do give a call. Let me know what you think. Uh, Some some big news breaking last night, or or at least a a narrative catching a lot of attention last night on the social media now. Pardoning Trump, firing Mueller. That seemed to be the, the theme. Or rather, can Trump pardon himself? Can Trump fire Mueller? These are the big questions that are out there. And I I think there uh, was—it's interesting. The the press likes to ask these questions because asking the question, of course, casts uh, aspersions on Donald Trump, on his administration, because, well, if you need to pardon anybody, clearly they did something wrong, right? And if you— Uh, have to fire Mueller, clearly you are trying to cover something up. So by asking the question, it's a way of reinforcing in everyone's minds that there's something wrong here, that something bad is going on, that there's sketchy stuff happening. But it's interesting to watch because I think there's also a little quiet panic in the newsrooms of New York and D.C. and I think the editorial boards of the Washington Post, the New York Times, I think over at CNN, MSNBC and the various three letter networks. I I think that they may have had to stop and think, hold on a second. Hold on. You mean you mean no one's going to prison from the Trump administration, probably? And the answer is, yeah, actually, very unlikely that that that's going to happen in the highly unlikely scenario, but not impossible given these criminal investigations that are happening. If, let's say, I don't know, Donald Trump Jr., or that's an obvious one. If, let's say, well, I don't know, Ryan's previous, he might be on his own. But let's say, like, Jared Kushner uh, got caught up in some in a perjury trap uh, and they wanted to press charges against him. The president can just, with... With a simple, with a pretty straightforward directive, he he can pardon Kushner. Just full, just full stop. He can do it. He can pardon anybody he wants to. The power to pardon is one of the most awesome and unlimited. And I don't mean awesome in the like, dude, awesome. But it's one of the most awe-inspiring and powerful tools that the president of the United States has. Can can pardon anyone for any any federal criminal offense, before, during, or after a uh, prosecution and trial so he can just he can just wipe it away fascinating question of course that was being bandied about by the people that use words like bandied about um last night uh was that well is the notion of whether the president could pardon himself if need be uh that's sort of in a hmm category i would think the answer 
would would be yes, but it's not. There's some reason to believe that no, actually, impeachment proceedings are considered to be the precursor, or or, or impeachment proceedings were thought by the founders to be. Uh, what comes before the possibility of criminal charges. Clearly, if you're the president, you're being impeached for a criminal offense. You would just want to, like, before they get rid of you, you'd want to uh, pardon yourself. So that's now getting talked about a lot. And as I said, they're talking about it to make the Trump administration look bad. No, No question about it, right? They're pushing this narrative because it's a way of uh, making— well, alluding to the guilt of the Trump administration, it, it's a way of uh, getting people thinking about what a guilty Donald Trump as president would do. But then there's also that little moment of like, oh, wait a second, that's a real thing where he could pardon anybody. Now, I think that most of the journalists, the Democrats, the people who are pushing the narrative really would be happy if they could just get the political damage done to the Trump administration of criminal charges from this Mueller probe Remember, you got former FBI Director Mueller, who's just got a, a huge team together. They're looking at all kinds of stuff, including Trump's finances, stretching back for who knows how long. And there are some very real concerns that the investigation has already stretched beyond its original mandate. So you've got people that are asking about whether Trump could pardon anybody. The, the answer to whether Trump could pardon anybody in the White House is yes. Can he pardon himself? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, and so there you have it. Uh, and then and then you get to the issue of of Mueller and what's going on. Uh, what's going on with the Mueller investigation? Um, by the way, so people are saying that Trump can't pardon himself. But let me just point out, legal experts. But let me point out that th- that's a we don't know question because it's never happened. Be- it's never happened before. And I don't know how that would uh, how that would play out. Um, now, on the special counsel, it's a little trickier. Can he fire the special counsel? This was also being raised because Mueller is now uh, based on the leaks. Keep in mind, this is supposed to be a secret investigation. And yet we're hearing all this stuff about it. But based on the leaks of the investigation of what it's looking at already, the press has got all these sources that are telling them stuff, whether it's true or not. Um uh, yeah, it looks like Mueller could get fired by by Trump. Um, it looks like that is possible. So these are the uh, these are the places where the media is going today. And if he were to fire him, by the way, uh, if he were to fire him, then uh, I think you would see. I I don't know actually. The press has been so. Uh, anti-Trump from the beginning, and they've been so panicked about this whole administration that what does the media equivalent of DEFCON 1 look like, right? What is the bridge too far with Trump? What is the last straw? What's the this this shall not stand, man? What What is that with Trump when it comes to Because I think we, they've been there for a long time. So there, I don't know if there's any more leeway. I, I think the speaker volume has turned up all the way. Those of you who are fans of This Is Spinal Tap, they've already got it to 11. There's nowhere else for it to go. So here we are now with the possibility of a, uh, a Trump pardon for some of the folks around him looming and the possibility of Trump maybe getting rid of Mueller. 
And it, it, it all then also points in the direction of people just don't care the way the media cares about all of this. There, there's just, a, a, I think, a widespread sentiment among a lot of Trump supporters, Trump voters, that even if he were to fire Mueller, well, so what? There shouldn't have been a special counsel in the first place. In fact, I think you could argue pretty uh, easily that the only reason there is a special counsel is because Trump made a mistake in his public pronouncements and opened up the door for it. And all of this criticism of uh, Jeff Sessions, I saw what's former acting attorney general Sally Yates last night on the Twitter. Oh, it's an, a, an assault on the Justice Department and you know undermines our democracy. I mean, you know. The sanctimony from the anti-Trump Democrats is just stifling. You know, it's just, oh, please, enough, all right? It's always it's always like they're uh, trying to outdo the funeral oration by Pericles or something. I mean, they're just, uh, uh, there's there's no end to the, the grandiose terms that are used to describe Trump's destruction of America by the anti-Trump left. Uh, including former acting attorney general Sally Yates, who is suggesting that Trump's not allowed to criticize uh, the Jeff Sessions recusal decision. Now, that's a decision that Sessions made. Agree with it or disagree with it. It was a discretionary choice. It was not mandatory under the law. Sessions did not have to do it. Therefore, it's completely understandable for the president to say, look, I don't like it. I don't think that he should be going after Sessions as hard as he has in public. I don't agree with that. But it's not an assault on our democracy. And by the way, where was Sally Yates? Where were these titans of the republic when Barack Obama was giving a speech? I know this is a whataboutism, but you got to do whataboutisms with Obama because— this is why the media narrative just doesn't, they're throwing these punches and they're not landing. And they're like, what's going on? We're putting all we've got into them. And people are saying, sorry. You know, impervious to all of your best efforts so far, media. Because where were the Sally Yateses? Uh, where were, I mean, Eric Holder now, by the way, also out on Twitter, I see. You know, you got some former Obama people who are uh, Obama administration officials who are coming out, you know, Sally Yates, Eric Holder. Um, I'm sure there will be more. You're going to hear more from Hillary. Hello! In the days ahead, no question. Uh, and they're all, where were they, though, when Barack Obama stood in front of a joint session of Congress and said something, well, first of all, denigrated the Supreme Court, and said that it had opened up uh, opened up elections to foreign money, foreign influence, endless foreign influence, which really undermines what is a co-equal branch of government. You see, Sally Yates and some of these others out there seem to forget the DOJ is, in fact, a part of the executive branch. The impartiality of DOJ is a guideline, not a rule, per se. And the Supreme Court, however, is actually a co-equal branch of government with the Congress. And the president, when it was Obama, stood in front of the Supreme Court, in front of the American people, tens of millions of people watching, and accused the Supreme Court of undermining our democracy. And also just what he said was flatly false, completely wrong. It was, it was a, a reading of that case, a reading of law that a first-year law student would be laughed at by his peers. But, you know, it was Obama, so it, had, it was brilliant because, you know, Obama, everything he does is brilliant. Uh, but where were these guardians of our democracy? I know this is, it's a republic, not a democracy. Yeah, we, but we have democratic processes in a republic, and people use these terms interchangeably, rightly or wrongly. That's what happens. 
So uh, this is how this is how I see it right now. This is, <laughs> I guess, every day is how I see it when I'm on the show. But there's a lot of questions about the possibility of the Mueller investigation uh, getting shut down by Trump. I I would say that Trump wouldn't do that, except I'm not sure that Trump won't do that. <laughs> so I think any other president wouldn't do it. But Trump, I don't think he really cares how much uh, gnashing of teeth, how much sadness, how much rage and, and, and fury is directed at him from the media. Because what else can they really do at this point? They say he's a traitor. They say he's a criminal. They hate him. They hate his family. Uh, how much more anger can they direct at him? I, I think they've, they're already giving everything they've got every day. So, uh, let's take some call. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Uh, oh, it, it's Action Movie Quote Friday, too, everybody. Come- there we Action. go. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Movie. Come to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action Movie Quote Fridays. Let's see what you got. 844-900-BUCK. Hitting a break. We'll be right back. Lit. It's Friday. Let's do it. Uh, we will go to Bob in Virginia on WPTI. Hey, Bob. Yes, sir. Glad to talk to you again. I think we're going into a little bit of a lull. I just think the little economic news and Mitch calling a vote next week. I think things are getting thrown off a bit and putting the Scaramucci in the box. Uh, I think he's throwing curveballs and, you know, let Donald call their bluff. Throw Mueller out. I don't care. It's not going to bother me. Uh, I think we're just getting, uh, you know, I think we're catching a little breath here. I really feel that for some reason. And probably you're right. I don't care what anybody thinks anymore. I really don't. <laughs> yeah, the, the media has numbed us to outrage from them. It's very hard to uh, to care when, they, I mean, they've already leveled accusations of treason. I mean, I just got a, a few tweets from some some uh, some Team Buck listeners saying, look, the fact we're even talking about pardons, we haven't even identified a crime yet. Well, how, how could we be talking about pardons? We don't even know what the crime would be. Collusion's not a crime. So this is this is now a discussion of pardons for as yet not as yet undetermined possible crimes, Bob. This is Looney Tunes. Yeah. Yeah, it's just crazy. And like you know, you're talking about your movie. You can't handle the truth. That's what it all comes down to. <laughs> everybody everybody likes a few good men here and there. Thank you very much, Bob. Shields high and have a great weekend. Uh, let's take, uh, Anne in Virginia on WKCI. Hey, Anne. Good evening, Mr. Sexton. Hello, Anne. Are you, <laughs> are you as disappointed if, you know, Spicer leaves? Does that mean the end of Melissa McCarthy on SNL? I don't know. I hope that they can, they can keep that going for a little bit because that was the first funny thing I'd seen in a long time on <laughs> SNL. <laughs> No kidding. Yeah. All right, and have a great weekend. Thank you very much for uh, for calling in. I appreciate it. Shields high. Greg in Oklahoma. What's up, Greg? Hey, Buck. Um, I think the media might need to open their lens a little bit instead of focusing on how uh, fake newsy the fake news is and how Russia is in every crevice of our lives. We might want to turn our eyes to the Middle East and take a look, a good hard look at what's going on in Iraq. Um, we have now seen kind of a celebration that Mosul's been quote unquote liberated. Um, when you look at the pictures, I don't I don't see the total destruction of 
the third uh, major Sunni city destroyed as sort of a liberation. I think we should have some, we need have some serious talks about what's going on here and what are the steps moving forward. Um, the longer we allow the Iraqi government uh, to be beholden to Iran, the bigger this issue um, is going to be. I think even though ISIS is diminished, uh, the Sunni world is watching. And with all these Shia militias, um, you know, destroying cities after city after city, there is going to be resentment and the likelihood of some sort of reprisal um, at some point, uh, whether it's, you know, in the next six months or the next year. Um, obviously, this blood feud between the Sunnis and Shias is hundreds of years old, and these things are not easily forgotten. Um, have, you, have you seen the celebration of this this whole Mosul's been liberated? Oh, of course, yeah. By the way, I'm, I'm going to do a buck brief later on in the show because we have the time on this Friday to get into it about what I think the next steps for ISIS will be in a global sense. But, yes, it's, it's tough because I, I understand the desire of the Iraqi government, Greg, on one hand— to come out and say, see, we've, we've taken back this city. But as, as you're saying, uh, well, it was taken back with a lot of help from Shia militias, and it's been turned to rubble in whole neighborhoods. We've, you can see there's video of it online. You can see it. I mean, it looks like, uh, like Dresden in World War II in some places. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, the issue they're having right now is they're saying it's what I've seen reports of. It's going to take 10 years to just clear the city of IEDs and booby traps and mines and things like that. Um, and I mean, 10 years seems awfully optimistic for the kind of forces that they have in Iraq to, to do bomb disposal and things like that. I just think that this is going to be a real thorn in the side. And I know we're sending more troops there right now. Uh, I know an army brigade or, um, is being deployed to Iraq. And this is just, I don't know what we're supposed to do here, Buck, but it's definitely getting in bed with Tyran, uh, Tehran. Um, is not yeah, I, I think it's fair, Greg, to say that Mosul is Mosul is a a is a destroyed city. Uh, I mean, it, they're re- okay. they they can rebuild it, but it has been in in lo- no small part destroyed. I know there's still a lot of buildings, a lot of people living there, but it is non-functional as a normal as a normal uh, urban environment. Right, and and kind of like I said, I mean, Fallujah, Ramadi, and and now Mosul. This is their this is Baghdad's liberation of these cities um and, and i just see this being a massive problem within the Sunni committee uh community where they're not going to allow this or let this this yeah you, you raise a very good point greg which is that it's the sunni it's the sunni arab majority cities of iraq that have been leveled not shia exactly and and that that comes to where the bag we need to put pressure on the baghdad government to disband all of these shia militias and then allow sunnis to rejoin uh, the National Police Force and the National Army, because I know a lot of those people were purged from the Army over the last three and a half years to five years. Greg, great to talk to you, man. Thank you for your service and thank you for your call. Uh, always good to have Greg from Team Buck give us a ring. Uh, team, we are we'll take some more calls after the break, and then I've got uh, I've got a special surprise guest in this hour. Do you guys know that next week is Shark Week? I know. We'll talk more politics in hour two. Sean Spicer shake up. I've got. Uh, National Junk Food Day to discuss with you. A lot of things coming. Stay with me. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. 
President Trump have confidence that Robert Mueller will conduct a fair investigation? Uh, you know, at this point, I don't um, have any reason to see otherwise, but I have not had a chance to ask the president, and I'd want to get clarity on that before I comment. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Sarah Huckabee Sanders should get some clarity on that one before she answers. Uh, Mueller, a fair investigation. I worry that there's a, a feeling among Mueller, maybe not even vocalized to anyone except his innermost circle, and uh, but there's a feeling that, you know, the FBI's integrity was besmirched by Trump by firing Comey, and so it's payback time. I, I do have that concern. That's something that I, I think could be very real. By the way, uh, this just in, there will be some testimony next week in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, including uh, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, I know Jared Kushner's uh, testifying in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee behind closed doors. Um, Paul Manafort will be testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee as well. But there was one other person who was supposed to testify in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee who didn't get nearly as much attention, of course, as the rest. And that's Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS. Fusion GPS is that oppo research organization that was behind the dossier. Well, according to NBC News here, and this is breaking news, my friends, just now here on Friday, Friday uh, late in the day. Fusion GPS Glenn Simpson says he can't attend next week's Judiciary Committee hearing, is out of country, and says he'd plead fifth anyways. So this guy's like, yeah, sorry, going to be overseas, so can't do that whole testifying before the Senate thing. And BT Dubs, by the way, would plead the fifth would assert his right to uh, silence in an effort to avoid self-incrimination. So, we do have somebody who's pleading the fifth. People have been saying, what if Jared Kushner pleads the fifth? Or what if Donald Trump Jr. does? And, and I do think that Donald Trump Jr. has learned the hard way. you got to be careful what you say in public about this stuff. Even if you've done nothing wrong... You have to be very precise and forthright because you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt from this media at all. Quite the opposite. They're looking to entrap you. Um, but there we have it. Uh, we've got a bunch more calls up. Wanted to make sure that folks aren't just waiting. So let's get them in here. We have uh, Tom in Ohio on WWVA. Hey, Tom. Hey, good afternoon, Buck. You know, you know, I got to tell you, as far as uh, Trump uh, getting rid of Mueller, you know, what he needs to do is to get on Jeff Sessions to uh, start the grand jury investigations, number one, on whether there was any type of collusion between Mueller and Comey and uh, the acting attorney general. Because when you go back to the testimony of uh, Comey, he seemed to be bragging that what did happen was what he expected to happen in terms of uh, uh, Mueller being uh, picked. Now, now, going beyond that, when you take a look at the people that Mueller picked in terms of Clinton uh, supporters and uh, Clinton lawyer and so forth, I mean, it's so one-sided. Then on addition to that, in addition to that, uh, Sessions should be looking into all the leaks that have taken place, the unmasking by uh, uh, Obama officials, and even going back to Hillary's server and uh, the foundation, which, uh, you know, to my knowledge, are still within the statute of limitations. In other words, why isn't he getting off a dead center and supporting his president or get out of the way? These are all very interesting questions, Tom. Uh, I, I do think that there that the possibility of the Clinton email coming up over the course of the special counsel investigation is very real. I I, I could see that happening. I, I can't tell you how 
I mean, no one can tell you how I think exactly right now that would would be the case. But given what we've been told about Russia and uh, all the involvement, remember, it's a a mandate having to do with the Russia involvement in the election. Well, if there were officials who were requesting uh, unmasking as part of trying to figure out what's going on with Russia or, or whatever, that's a legitimate line of inquiry for the special counsel. Okay, that may be, but uh, it, it, you know what I'm saying is my concern is that he may look at it, but he also may not put any weight into it, or uh, you know just uh, look at it uh, super sh- uh, superficially. Uh, I'm saying why isn't the Justice Department, on behalf of the administration, looking into it? Oh uh, well, they may. Um, I-, I think because. You know, Tom, I actually don't have a good answer as to why they're not, because it's uh, they don't want to be seen as relitigating what the Justice Department already put aside. I, I don't know. I mean, to me, that's the 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 really if you want to fight, fight back and fight tough with uh, the whole Democrat apparatus, you reopen the Hillary email investigation and say, look, we right. don't think this was handled properly. It's look into that steel situation with the dossier. Uh, who paid him? I mean, there are so many things there that Sessions could be looking into that, you know, at the very least, even if there's nothing there, would hit the media. It would have the media would have to, you know, play it to some extent and, you know, get it off of Russia, 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 which is really killing Trump and anything else he's trying to do. Yep. All right, Tom. Thank you very much for calling in. Uh, Larry in Ohio on WMAN. Hey, Larry. Hi, Buck. Enjoy your show. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you calling. A uh, couple nights ago, I was listening to you, and uh, you said something about Trump meeting with the New York Times. Um, you wasn't really in favor of it, which I agree. But there's an old saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Don Trump, uh, President Trump is a street smart New York businessman. He's not dumb. Uh, He had a reason for doing that. Uh, My main point is I've run this by you before, and I'll run this by you again. That fence that they're going to start to construct or have constructed along the Mexican border. Forget it. Take a division of troops out of um, I can't remember. National Guard? No, uh, the fort in in, in uh, Texas, uh, Fort Hood. No, yeah, Fort Hood in Texas. Larry, God bless, man. I appreciate you calling in, but we actually have to run into a break here, so I apologize for for cutting off. Please do call back soon, though. We will take the rest of your query, and uh, we have to run because we have our friend from Shark Week joining, and then we'll talk more politics. Stay with me. All right, Team Buck, I know we've been talking about politics and collusion investigations and Russia and all that stuff. Let's put all of that aside, because after all, we are in the midst of a Freestyle Friday. It is the middle of summer. And for those of you who may not know, next week is Shark Week. 
So I want to talk to you about some sharks because I find sharks absolutely fascinating. And I want to bring on an expert to help us wade through the issue. See what I did there? I know. Throw something at me, Amy. Dr. Chris Lowe joins us now. He's a marine biology professor at California State University, Long Beach. He's also director of the Cal State Long Beach Shark Lab and has been working for more than a year with Discovery Channel to produce an episode for Shark Week titled Sharks and the City L.A. Dr. Lowe, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Uh, all right, well, let's just kick it right off with, tell me about, I mean, Shark Week is something I always get excited about, uh, but what is Sharks in the City L.A.? So Sharks in the City is basically telling a story of what we think is happening with white sharks in the Pacific. And basically, shark populations are going up. So with shark populations increasing, new white sharks have to find new places to live and hunt. And we think Southern California may be one of those places. And you have evidence of this because of increased predation of certain species, or what's? Are you are you tagging these sharks and following them? And what? I know you don't want to give away everything because it's in the episode, but what's what's driving this uh, this thesis? Well, number one, Southern California is known as the nursery for white sharks. So this is where big females come to give birth to their young, and then those little sharks show up and hang out off our beaches. But that's only part of the story. The other part of the story is based on the fact that our marine mammal populations have recovered quite well. We have seals and sea lions all over the place, but they primarily use the offshore islands. And what we've seen is increased predation on those seals and sea lions. So that tells us that there are more large sharks around, not just the ones giving birth to these babies. So we've been going out on expeditions to those islands trying to tag those sharks so we can see how much time do they spend in Southern California. People always think of great white sharks as, as the ultimate alpha predator. Um, when, when we talk about Shark Week, I know that there's always, uh, there, there are people who want to ask lots of questions about attacks, but just put that into perspective for us, because once every, I don't know, six months or so, I'll read something about someone somewhere getting bitten by a shark. What, what are the chances stateside that you actually have to worry about a white shark or any kind of shark coming after you? Well, that's a really good question. And the bottom line is, based on total statistics throughout U.S., one in 17 million. That's your chances of being bitten by a shark. It's pretty darn low. Now, I assume it goes up if you are engaged in certain activities. People always think of the coast of California as a place there's a lot of uh, surfing, boogie boarding, and that's where you get into this uh, issue of misidentification where a great white shark may go after somebody thinking that it's one of those uh, marine mammals you mentioned, seals, sea lions, etc. Yeah, exactly. So... We still don't really know why sharks occasionally bite people. You know, we have, some, we have some theories, we have some hypotheses as to why that may happen. So one possibility is sharks bite people because they confuse us for food. They're in a feeding mode. They either mistake us for their normal prey. They take a bite and realize that wasn't what they expected. So the person's left and swims away and hopefully gets back to the beach safely. The other possibility, and one that frequently isn't considered, is that sharks may bite people for defensive reasons. In other words, we may just be in their personal space, and they're trying to defend themselves. So unfortunately, we don't know a lot about what instigates those, those situations, but we have learned some things just based on sheer statistics. Number one, if you're at a remote location and you're by yourself, you're much more likely to be bitten than if you're in a group. So what we always tell people is stay in a group. If you're surfing in a populated beach, your chances of being bitten are much lower than if you're off by yourself. 
Interesting. I did not know that. Marine biology professor uh, Dr. Chris Lowe from Cal State University, Long Beach. He also has been working with Discovery Channel for Shark Week, which is coming up this week. I know you work specifically on sharks in the city of L.A. Do you, can you tell us about some some of the other things that people will be seeing this week? Any new research, new episodes, or are you just only focused on that one episode and don't really pay attention to the rest of the Shark Week stuff? <laughs> well, I have. I've been pretty much focusing all my attention on our own research here in the Pacific. And again, the adult expeditions that we made were, were really trying to look at what happens as the population expands and where might we expect to find white sharks next. But we've been continuing our work on the baby white sharks, and that's been super interesting. So this summer, we've tagged 20 sharks before the season even really started. So it's been a bang-up summer already, which, again, supports this idea that the population's growing. So we've learned some really cool things about the babies and, and used some really cool new technology to try to figure out what they're doing. So we incorporate things like what we call smart tags, which is basically a Fitbit for sharks that we can clamp on their dorsal fin. And it measures every single motion the shark makes. It measures the temperature of the water it swims through, the depth. It has a video logger so we can see what the shark sees. It's got an acoustic transmitter on it so we can follow the shark for 24 hours. And then that device pops off, floats the surface. We can pick it up and download it. Where's the single greatest, I'm focusing a lot on California here, but that's where uh, the great white shark populations are are the densest in terms of U.S. coastline, right? But where, where specifically in California do you see the, the biggest population of white sharks right now? Well, a lot depends on the size that you're talking about. So, for example, right now off New England, they've seen, you know, a pretty significant increase in the, in the number of large adult white sharks. And I grew up on Martha's Vineyard, and my whole time growing up there, I never saw a white shark or heard of a white shark being in close to shore. But now they're everywhere, and of course the gray seal population has exploded off the Cape. Here in the Pacific, you know, the Farallon Islands, the central California coast, was kind of a hot spot. It's a feeding aggregation site for adults. And then we also know about this feeding aggregation site off the island of Guadalupe, which is off the Mexican coast. So what we think is happening is these populations are increasing because we enacted protection for white sharks 10 to 20 years ago. And as a result, that conservation is working and the populations are coming back. Have they ever filmed uh, a a birth of a great white shark in the wild? I'm sorry for the rudimentary question, but I just don't know. No, uh, actually, no. That's a holy grail for shark biologists is to know where they're giving birth, how do they do it, As best we know, females give birth to litters of up to 2 to 14 pups. Those pups weigh about 60 to 65 pounds apiece and are 5 feet long at birth. Wow. And and so we we don't even know. We've never filmed it, but we also are not even entirely sure where that's happening. No. We don't know where mating occurs. We don't know where they give birth. And, frankly, we don't know how long they carry their babies for. There's a lot of debate about is it 12 months, is it 20 months. Nobody really knows for sure. And great white sharks, there have been efforts to keep them in captivity, right? The Monterey Aquarium made it up to about six months, but that's it. And, and in a lot of other cases, they only last a few days. Why is it that you, you know, you, if you go to a lot of big aquariums, you'll see nurse sharks. Uh, I think they'll have some different reef sharks in there, right? But you'll never see like an, a 15-foot great white shark in an aquarium. Why is that? Well, because basically it's like cheap trying to keep an elephant. So those, the Monterey Bay Aquarium has been by far the most successful at doing this. So the biggest challenge that they had was keeping those little sharks fed. 
So the shark that they kept for six months gained 100 pounds in six months. And the reason why they had to let it go is it was starting to eat its tank mates. So they were so successful, and, and the sharks were growing so fast, they were actually worried about keeping them too long. So we learned a lot about the growth capacity and, and the feeding habits of white sharks just from the ones kept on exhibit. What's the biggest great white shark, Doc, you've ever seen uh, in the wild? Well, I guess they're all in the wild, but the big, biggest one you've ever seen alive. Uh, probably the biggest one was about 16 feet long. Wow. And, and I know you're around them a lot, but it, there must be a little bit of like, wow, that's a really big shark, right? I mean, oh. when you see it in person, it's got to be kind of like, whoa, that's got a lot of teeth. Absolutely. And, and when you see those sharks, they're just so beautiful. They're mesmerizing to watch. But when they get up close and you start thinking about who they are and what they do and, and how, you know, how their physiology works, it's just impossible to not be in awe. I mean, they are the true Olympians of the shark world. One, one question that third grade Buck would want to ask you, so excuse me for, for tossing it out there, and then I'll give you one. There's one thing I want to ask you about Shark Week, and we'll let you go, Doc. But uh, orcas, uh, uh, killer whales, they do sometimes kill great white sharks, right? So actually, at the very apex of uh, predators in the sea, orcas kill great white sharks, don't they? Or, or if I, is that just an Internet meme that I've caught? Oh, no, no, no. They are at the tippy top. You know, they're the true kings and queens of the ocean. So you, you take a mammal that size, uh, that, that's also unbelievably powerful, very smart and social. Um, that they are truly, you know, the top predator in the ocean. So even a white shark doesn't have a chance against uh, a pot of orca. Tell everybody, Doc, when they can see your, uh, the special you were involved in, Sharks in the City on the Discovery Channel for Shark Week, which is next week, everybody, uh, Tuesday, July 25th, 9 p.m. Uh, uh, anywhere, anything else you want to direct people to? Any research or work you're on? Sure. If people are interested in learning more about what we're learning, they can go to the CSUOB Shark Lab website, our Facebook page, or our Twitter account. Fantastic. Dr. Chris Lowe of California State University, great to have you on, sir. Really appreciate the time, and best of luck with Shark Week and all your research. Thank you so much for having me. All right, team, now we can get back into the White House, communications, all that stuff. Russia, blah, blah, all the political things for a little bit. And then we'll switch topics again, but we'll be right back. All right, everybody, there's a lot going on today in the world of D.C. media. The national political scene has been rocked by some departures from the West Wing to help us wade through all this. We got Joe Concha joining now. He is a media reporter and columnist for The Hill. I also frequently see him doing an excellent job up on the Fox News. Mr. Concha, good to have you. Hey, Buck, how are you? I just got out of the pool to do this hit, so it better be good. Oh, man. I, I don't know. If I had known that, I probably would have told you to wait for next week. The pool sounds great right now. I'm hoping to head off for the weekend myself here before too long. But let's get into it. Sean Spicer is out. Why should we care? Do you care? I'm not sure I care all that much. Who cares if we care? Who cares if Buck cares? Who cares if Concha cares? I think middle America doesn't care. I think the people that want to finally hear news about things they care about, they don't care about this stuff. They don't know who Anthony Scaramucci is from a hole in the wall. They don't care who the director of communications is or Sarah Huckabee Sanders is giving press briefings. I think this is a bubble story. I get that it's interesting because press, you know, press secretaries normally don't leave six months into the job. It usually takes a year or two. Uh, but overall, I mean, we saw the writing on the wall. He hasn't done really any press briefings lately. Uh, obviously, he became a caricature of himself, Buck. 
right? I mean, I think once the SNL effect takes place and you got Melissa McCarthy playing you on a weekly basis, you become that character instead of that person. And the reason I know this is because Sarah Palin in 2008, everybody, when I mean everybody, I mean Zogby did a poll, asked Americans, do you think Sarah Palin said, I could see Russia from my house? And 87% said, yeah, sure, of course she said that. No, she never said that. Sarah, Sarah, uh, what's her name? Dina Fey said that. Dina Fey, excuse me. So uh, that's what happened here. He became a character of himself. Uh, he obviously had a truculent uh, relationship with the press, and quite frankly, uh, the, the president never really wanted him in the first place. So good for him for getting out instead of hanging on somewhere, and uh, we, we wish him luck, and now the White House can start with a clean slate. How did he get the job in the first place, just out of curiosity? Do you know how that whole series of events happened? Spicer I'm talking what about. I'm, right. What I'm told, Buck, from uh, I hate saying unnamed sources, reliable sources, because I, 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 I chide people for that, but that that's on the important stuff. For something like this, it's kind of gossipy. For what I was told from somebody pretty close uh, to the White House press office, um, Ryan's previous basically said, look, you want me as uh, White House chief of staff and you're taking my communications guy from the RNC. Remember, they were both from the Republican National Committee. You're taking him with me. And Trump kind of wanted somebody more combative, wanted somebody outside the establishment to be his messenger. Uh, but eventually, uh, Priebus kind of won out. Uh, and that's that's how Sean Spicer got that job. So you see, he had experience going in. But I think that in the end, uh, President Trump wanted Laura Ingram uh, to be his press secretary. But uh, that, that's just the way it went. Uh, by the way, what do you think about uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' performance? Be- before I get your, your take on that as a media reporter, let's hear what Ms. Huckabee Sanders had to say today about how she's been doing. I think it's uh, probably uh, the one of, certainly professionally, one of the greatest honors that any person could ever have to work in any capacity within this building and to get to do that up here in such a public way and speak on behalf of the president uh, is absolutely an honor and something I will cherish and hope to do my very, very best every single day and be as open, honest, and transparent with you all as humanly possible. She's certainly earnest. What do you think? I think that she's fine. You know, I think she's lying, and I mean this in an endearing way. Uh, (laughs) I think she's fine. I think she's lying. That would be a great uh, quote for the Twitter. Go ahead. Yeah, right, Buck. She's lying because it's not an honor to be the White House press secretary. It is the hardest white-collar job in the country. I don't care who's president, particularly a President Trump who's like a quarterback who runs out in front of his offensive line with the tweets and the offensive line being his communications team. So. I mean, I think, I'm sure she's happy with the job, but it's just so hard. I, I, I guess it's an improvement from Spicer. Spicer was doomed from day one, Buck, and I wrote about this on the Hill. Uh, if you remember, and I literally mean day one, the day after the inauguration, he came out and gave this statement, a declaration to reporters saying that was the most watched inauguration ever. I remember. Ever. Didn't take any questions, and that set the tone right there that, A, he was saying something that was provably false. I get what he was saying, like with streaming and all these other worldwide public uh, you know the, the ways to watch things these days it's more than it was eight years ago and probably more people watch i get it but then people just showed the pictures and disproved that and the fact he didn't take any questions then uh from the press after making that declaration that that was the end form before it began and then apparently trump didn't like the suits he wore either uh, so you know when you have that going against you that that's a problem so she'll be fine but uh, I honestly think that uh, you'll probably see two or three uh, press secretaries if Trump goes eight years. And uh, and Mr. Scaramucci took the podium today. He was asked this question by a reporter. Let me ask you a variation of what I asked Sean Spicer on his first day. Uh, is it your commitment to, uh, to the best of your ability, give accurate information, the truth from that podium? I mean, 
I sort of feel like I don't even have to answer that question. I hope you can feel that from me, just from my body language. That's the kind of person I am. We'll do the best I can. Well, what do you think about Mr. Scaramucci? You know what I would have, how I would answer that question? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do that, but this needs to be a two-way street where you're as accurate and you're as truthful as you can be to the people that you're serving, your readers, your viewers as well. Is that a deal? In other words, it's, it's, it, that, that comes from a place, that reporter that asked that, like, we're always truthful, will you be? Well, obviously we've seen that isn't the case. Scaramucci, I, I wrote notes uh, on this uh, while, while he was on. And I saw him as authentic in, in the same way Trump is and that he talks like a regular person. He doesn't talk like a D.C. person or your typical press secretary. And he's not a press secretary, but he's he's just like Trump in that regard. And I think there's just a genuine quality to him that that is endearing, that is charming. And he won't be doing press briefings and he'll be strategizing behind the scenes. And I think that could be a good thing because Trump needs somebody that uh, is loyal to him. I don't think he ever felt Spicer was that way. And now he has one of his own guys in there. And as far as economic policy, he's probably pretty good at that. And that's the next big message that you're going to see out of this White House after health care tax reform and tax cuts. And who better to have, you know, strategizing a communication strategy around that than Mr. Scaramucci? Now, the storylines around this White House are, are fascinating. Whether they're believable or not, I, I leave to uh, to the folks who, who read or listen or, or see them themselves, because there, there's a lot of stuff that's obviously said that's inaccurate. Some of it is accurate. But with regard to the future of Steve Bannon as a an essential advisor in this White House, do you have a prognostication? Do you have some sources telling you one way or the other what's going on? Oh, boy. I mean, I it's a Friday, so we can just spitball you. That's what we're doing. I hear you, Buck. I hear you. No, I was no boying your question. I was no boying the fact that I remember back in March, that was supposed to be the end of Steve Bannon, and he's on the way out. And Ryan's previous has until July 4th to clean up XYZ or else he's out. And I, really, I haven't seen any major changes in this White House. If you, I mean, you want to say the White House press secretary, okay. But uh, outside of Mike Flynn, who had to go, um, again, I keep hearing all this palace intrigue around. Is Bannon gone? Is this person gone? You know, who knows? <laughs> will, will the Cubs win again this World Series this year? Who knows? Uh, anything I say now will be forgotten in, in a day anyway. So uh, I'll, I'll bet that he stays because Trump wants him close. Because if he goes back to Breitbart and Breitbart's the, the, his biggest supporter, uh, he can make things difficult for him if things, if things end on a bad note. So I say he stays because the alternative is worse. Do you think that this White House feel? And by the way, everybody, we're, we're speaking to Joe Concha, who's a media reporter at The Hill. You can read his latest on thehill.com. Joe, do you think this White House uh, feels like there needs? They actually understand there does need to be messaging discipline. That that it can't just be uh, throw it up against the wall and see what happens all the time. Uh, Buck, I don't think the White House needs to know that. I think the president needs to know that. <laughs> I think that he needs to show some more discipline. I, I, and, I, and Trump supporters scream at me whenever I say this. I'm not saying he should stop tweaking. It doesn't have to be one or the other. There just needs to be impulse control. And when I was single, uh, I, I used to have this problem with uh, – it was called texting while impaired. Some called it drunk dialing. Uh, and it, it, with certain girls that I was trying to get in touch with at 2 o'clock in the morning, I would write things. I probably regret it. Uh, and then after a while, I began to look at that phone for 20 seconds, think of the worst-case scenario, and then hit delete. And I think the president needs to do that when he has an impulse to respond to something he sees on television. Just stare at that for 20 seconds. Give it to somebody you trust in the room. Say, is this a good idea? And What's the worst that could happen from it? Because he did that once with James Comey saying he had tapes, and he ended up with a special counsel as a result. So I, I think that's where the discipline has to start, at the top, by example, by Mr. Trump in terms of his messaging. Tweet, go, go ahead. Attack the media, fine. I have no problem with that. They make a mistake. Count your economic success, fine. But 
The other stuff has to go because you're putting your communications team in a very tough position. I got to say, we have a great new segment idea here. Joe Concha does drunk tweets for our yeah. Freestyle Friday show. <laughs> I'm married now, but I had some doozies. I mean, talk about, you know, Trump got a special counsel. I lost like four or five girls that absolutely were way up, well above my skis. Because I didn't <laughs> Joe, thanks, fun. man. Go go back. Uh, cannonball into that pool. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Joe Concha of the Hill, everybody, and team, we'll cannonball. be <laughs> we'll be right back. been one of the, str- the president's strongest supporters for, for, for a while now. But does he know what you said about him back in 2015 when you said he was a hack politician? He brings it up, he brings it up every 15 seconds, okay? <laughs> one of the biggest mistakes that I made, because I was an unexperienced person in the world of politics, I was supporting another candidate, I should have never said that about him. So, Mr. President, if you're listening, I personally apologize for the 50th time for saying that. But here's the wonderful thing about the news media. That was three minutes of my life. He's never forgotten it, and you've never forgotten it. And, but, you know, I hope that someday, Mr. President, you will forget it. Okay, let's go to the next question. There you have uh, Anthony Scaramucci, the new uh, chief of White House Communications, taking some uh, questions at the press conference today. First on-camera press conference in a while, and I, I, I got to say, um, for, let me let me just put some thoughts out there on this in, in general. Uh, the White House press secretary, who cares really who the White House press secretary is? I know Sean Spicer is out, and this has gotten a lot of people all, who the White House is a disarray. Sean Spicer has been reportedly on the way out for months now, so there's nothing that's surprising there at all. Uh, I think that Spicer made some pretty big errors in what he was willing to go out there and say to the press early on. And I think that that was, it was just a matter of time before he's going to move on. But the the media fascination with this, it's because the White House press secretary is the official White House interface with the press. Uh, it's because of that, that they are so focused in on this because it affects them, of course. That's why we're all supposed to care so much about this. Uh, but but we don't really have to care that much. You know, you've got Scaramucci, whom uh, I've met once and been on air with once. Uh, and look, he's a very slick, very smooth, uh, very, uh, well-educated guy, Harvard Law School. And he's going to run a tight shop down there. He is very well-liked by the Trumps, very connected in to them, and was a senior person on the Trump transition team. Uh, it was really just a matter of time before he was going to join based on uh, insiders uh, who are close to the, the Trumps that I've heard talking about this in the past. So we, we all knew Scaramucci was going to head down there. And now, of course, the, the press is in this frenzy because you've got a, a new White House communications director. Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, was put up there as the new press secretary. So it's not like Scaramucci is going to be the press secretary. He's going to be the guy behind the gal, in a sense, here. He's going to be the one who is managing everything behind the scenes in terms of White House press operations and, and the media interface. But I think that this is probably a good move. I think that Spicer was pro- was put in an, an almost impossible position. Fine, you know. I, I am going to kind of miss that, you know, the spicy thing on SNL. Uh, I think they're, they're going to be a little more shy about really going after Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, in that way, although maybe I'm wrong. They, SNL is a very political, uh, very politicized left-wing outfit these days, 
and, and for a long time that's been the case. It, it just used to be funny, right? So when it had Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, and Chris Farley, and and Adam Sandler. Well, actually, I don't remember it being really that political then at all, in retrospect. I, I don't remember that. They made fun of the president, whoever the president was, and it was done with the good faith of a comedian who's trying to make people laugh. In, in the last five or ten years, well, I should say, since the beginning of the Obama administration, Saturday Night Live was uh, unfunny because they wouldn't really make fun of the president. And in, in the Trump era, they're unfunny because... All they do is try to denigrate the president. They're not trying to just be humorous. They're trying to really uh, put the president down and put those around him down. And that's just not uh, it, look, it's it's not amusing. And it's uh, really sad to see that there could be an opportunity there for them to make Americans laugh. But instead, they want to poke fun and they want to be nasty. And that's what they do. But OK, so you, you have uh, Scaramucci now stepping into this role. Um, like I said, the guy's very smart, very capable. I mean, my expectations are that he will there there will be some press pieces about how he is really doing things. And so what you have here is a changing of the guard. It's not really all that surprising that given the amount of pressure the White House has been under in recent weeks, that they would try to bring in some new personnel and that they would uh, switch things up. But uh, the, the Spicer the Spicer change was a long time in coming. I think Scaramucci, you'll see uh, more message discipline. The president uh, has a lot of confidence in him. Uh, I have seen him on TV. I've talked to him in person. He's a very charming guy, a very, a very um, savvy operator, knows who to talk to and how to talk to them. So... He, I, I think he's a strong choice, and they need that help down there right now because Sarah Huckabee Sanders may be doing a good job up there taking questions from the press, but they need more of a strategy as to how they're going to be dealing with all this Russia investigation uh, stuff, the questions around it. I mean, this is not something that they can just do on the fly. I think the Trump administration, in large part, has been learning that despite— all of the overcoming of obstacles and despite all of their ability to reach this point in the game, winning the election, beating Hillary, that it takes more than just off-the-cuff commentary from the Donald to handle the onslaught from the media that he's under. And that's the reality of D.C. right now, that they're, they're in the middle of a siege and they need, in the White House communications office, they need a general. They need somebody who can direct and command the troops and who can get, the, so to speak, and who can get the job done. And I don't think that that was Sean Spicer. Now, I know people are saying Ryan's Priebus may be gone. I, you know, I don't know. I think that he still serves that important connection as a tie-in. Yeah, I don't know about Priebus. I'm not sure that there's really going to be this uh, shakeup because I, I think that, with regard to him, because I think that the Trump administration wants to keep some some kind of yeah some kind of connectivity with the Republican establishment and the Republican uh, the architecture that's already in place for the GOP the RNC and all that stuff but I mean clearly if I were previous you got to feel like something of an outsider at this point I mean he's not he's not in a position where he's uh, He's well situated to be in the president's confidence. And I, I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll see what we'll see what happens there. There's also those articles swirling around about 
Steve Bannon and what's going to happen with him. I, I don't see him going anywhere either right now because he seems like the kind of guy that if you were in a political food fight, you'd nope, no pun there. You know, if you're in a if you're in a political food fight, you, you'd want him by your side. I mean, you'd want somebody who is a mudslinger, is tough and takes and takes a no holds barred approach. And I think that's Bannon. You know, I think Scaramucci is also a very tough guy when he has to be based on what I'm told, but just does it in a more suave fashion than than Bannon. I mean, if you look at Scaramucci and Bannon side by side, you, you kind of pick up, you know, the way they dress and everything. You, you get a sense of their very distinct approaches, both very wealthy, very successful guys in their own right, by the way. Uh, but anyway, the White House communication shakeup is on a Friday, as you can imagine. Oh, a Friday in almost August here. The uh, the media are just eating this whole situation up. I mean, they're just viewing this as evidence that they're getting, uh, they're, they're scoring the points that they want to score against the administration, that the administration is uh, not going to be able to wriggle its way out of their, their grip here with all the Russia stuff. Um, but, you know, I've just seen so many times already, and I, I keep reminding myself of this, I feel like there have been so many instances of this administration, of this president specifically, of Donald Trump, being in a place where they're just like, there's no, there's no way that he's going to be able to uh, continue on. There, there's no way that he's going to um, push through this and, and come out the other side okay. And sure enough, uh, the, the president, time and time again, beats all the expectations against him. So... Yeah, I know right now things are going into the weekend. It's looking a little rough from some perspectives, and, and the press is a little too happy with itself about the damage that it's been able to do to this administration. But I, I think just, just give it some time, and you'll see that um, the resilience of the Trump White House is going to defy all expectations, I think. That's my guess. All right, we're going to hit a quick break here. I want to talk to you about immigration coming up. Uh, we'll hit that and much more. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. In the city of Philadelphia, in every sanctuary city, to reconsider uh, carefully the harm they are doing to their residents by refusing to cooperate with federal law enforcement to rethink these policies. Let's see if we can't get on the same path. And we've had some good meetings with a number of um, uh, cities in that regard. The showdown over sanctuary cities is coming, my friends. The acting ICE director, according to Fox, the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement head, is vowing to use new resources to target, target undocumented immigrants in sanctuary cities, some of these local jurisdictions that are saying that they do not want to be involved in this at all. You know, the administration does a pretty good job, I think, and Jeff Sessions is out there, obviously, to this end, of explaining to people how Immigrations and Customs Enforcement has an obligation to protect communities, that MS-13 gang members, for example, are often undocumented and are in communities where they're surrounded by other undocumented immigrants, and that there needs to be cooperation with the authorities and also cooperation among the authorities. You need local police to be willing to work with federal law enforcement in terms of notifying 
and also on these detainer requests that you have anywhere from 200 to 600 local and state uh, jurisdictions that have some kind of sanctuary policy in place is just staggering. And there is going to be a real uh, a real tension here because the administration, the Trump administration, has said, look, if you're not willing, if you're not willing to do the bare minimum here, which is to notify us, notify Immigration and Customs Enforcement, when, keep in mind, it's when they already have in custody somebody who is illegal. This is not asking local police to walk around doing sweeps. It's not asking local police to be checking immigration status. It's if they already have someone in custody, if they have already arrested a person, then the federal government, uh, the federal law enforcement agencies involved here would like notification from their local law enforcement partners. Outside of the issue of immigration, this is not a problem. You know, it really goes to, at a basic level, whether we believe in rule of law in this country. Because what you see with these different cities and towns and, and even some states is a defiance of federal immigration law to the degree that they can. So I suppose that means that they don't believe that the federal government has any right to determine who should and should not be here. In essence, the federal government is not allowed to write or enforce immigration law, that this is left up to individual localities. And that's when you start to ask the question, okay, well, what levers does the federal government have then? You know, if if Los Angeles or New York City decide that they're going to just allow illegals to stay here without any repercussions whatsoever, are they still supposed to get full federal funding for law enforcement? This is where you're going to see the, uh, I think, the first round of real fighting between the administration and the sanctuary jurisdictions, because once you start to pull back federal funding, then these law enforcement agencies, mayor's offices, police departments, they are going to pay attention. And this is going to end up, I think, in the courts. And it's going to be a very hotly contested issue because for the politicians in particular in major sanctuary jurisdictions like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and others, uh, to be seen as on the wrong side of this issue of illegal immigrants. Undocumented is not the right term. We need to stop allowing the left to dictate the terminology that we use. As a matter of law, it is actually illegal aliens, which appears countless times in, well, not countless times, but many, because you can count them, but many times in the federal code. Uh, the moment that we cede to the other side that there is already a, a, an immigrant status here is to confer on illegals something that they do not deserve. Immigrants go through a legal process, right? If I walk into a store and I pay for something, I am a patron. If I walk into a store and I take it, I am not a different kind of patron. I am a thief, these are legal terms for different acts, different activities. And yet the way the media wants to frame this discussion, and of course the Democrat Party, because of its tremendous reliance on uh, the populations of the country that have large numbers of people who are connected to illegal immigrant populations, right? I mean, the, this is really largely about pandering to the Latino-Hispanic vote in America. That's why the Democrats are so 
invested in this. You notice that, that, that Asian Americans, they don't pay nearly as much attention to on this issue because there aren't nearly as many uh, Asian American illegal immigrants, for one, but also that's not the constituency that the Democrats are entirely reliant on in their quest for state and hopefully, in their minds, national elected uh, national elections uh, victory. So that's, I, I think, uh, the, the proper context for this discussion. The Trump administration needs to put more of a focus on this issue of immigration, immigration policy. I'm going to talk to you more about that uh, as well on, on this show in general. Um, but the Trump administration should be looking at ways to raise this. And the sanctuary cities debate that's going to play out, I think, will be very favorable for the administration because at the end of the day, the Democrats on this are on the side of cynicism and lawlessness. And they can say as much as they want that this is about being kind, that this is about being uh, favorable towards the uh, the you know the, the masses from all over the world yearning to live and breathe free and all that. I, I understand the rhetoric, right? I also understand some of the phrases that they use uh, for how they're trying to say or how they're trying to frame the debate. Things like we are a nation of immigrants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but at at the end of the day, the sanctuary policy is a form of uh, collusion against the law. How about that? That's what the Trump administration should start to say, that local jurisdictions are colluding with that local police departments, local mayor's offices, and even some state houses are colluding with immigration violations. They are colluding with illegal immigrants because they are. They are working with them to get around the immigration system. There are activist groups that are trying to constantly teach illegal immigrants how to evade law enforcement, how to uh, stay in the country illegally, how to get around the laws that are meant to prevent illegals from working. Uh, and I, I just always want to pose to my to my friends here in New York City who are very pro-illegal immigrant, a lot of them. I mean, you come across this all the time because it's an, it's an emotionally satisfying perspective. It's an emotionally satisfying position. You know, I just want anyone who wants to come here to be able to stay. Well, you know, think about your house. You know, I, I wish that I could let anyone who wanted to stay in my apartment, but it would be a problem pretty quickly. I, I have to, you know, put limitations on it, right? The country is similar in that regard. You have to make distinctions. Um, you have to have laws. You have to have people who are invited. Um, and that's the way it is going to be. And sanctuary cities are an example of how local governments are just refusing to be lawful um, and, and are undermining the rule of law. All right, we're going to hit a break here, team. We'll be right back. Team, I think it was just the other day that I mentioned Foreign Affairs to you as a very worthwhile journal of international affairs if you're looking for that kind of thing. If you want a little light beach reading, if you want to hang out with the fancy types on the veranda, if you want to go have uh, mint juleps with Joe Scarborough out at the country club in Nantucket, you can bring a copy of Foreign Affairs and they'll say, "Egad, man! Foreign Affairs, I see. They'll be very pleased with you. It's better, by the way, if you read Foreign Affairs magazine, if you do it with a monocle and a top hat. I'm just telling you, it's the way to do it. So the... Let's talk about the reality of the immigration system, though, in this country and in another country, as described by uh, Jonathan Tepperman, who's the managing editor of Foreign Affairs. 
We're going to talk about Canada. Now, you think of Canada, as he points out, and I have mentioned this here before on the show. When you think of Canada, you just usually think of how it's got universal health care. They're really okay with weed smoking. Gay marriage is legal. There's a lot of stuff in Canada. Their uh, prime minister is like this uh, very, uh, how do you say, rugged, uh, handsome Canadian man who, uh, you know, would like to uh, tell all the first ladies of all the world bonjour. I guess he's he doesn't really sound like that. He actually doesn't have much of an accent at all, but I like to think of him that way. All of a sudden, Justin Trudeau has like a galoise and is wearing a beret and is like, I'm the prime minister of Canada. I have come to take all of your fancy stuff. Uh, but that's not really true. So he is, there's, there's a country, Canada's a country that obviously has some very leftist tendencies, very progressive, and yet when you look at their immigration policy as this piece, it's actually in the New York Times, but you look at this immigration policy and they're making far more sensible choices as a general uh, rule when it comes to immigration than we are here in the United States. Last year, quote, Canada admitted more than 320,000 newcomers, the most on record. Canada boasts one of the highest per capita immigration rates in the world, about three times higher than the United States. More than 20 percent of Canadians are foreign born. That's almost twice the American total, even if you include undocumented immigrants. And Ottawa plans to increase the number in the years ahead. Now, you're saying, wow, Canada Uh, you're going to have problems like Europe has had with rising crime rates and the cultural clashes that come from disparate uh, cultures showing up in your country that also oftentimes have individuals not particularly well-equipped to compete in the modern economy. They don't necessarily have the skill set. But in the case of Canada, that's actually not true because Canadians are picking their immigrants based on a very stringent scale of economic desirability. That's right. The, the, the Canadians look at people and actually have a point system in place. They are a merit-based immigration system country. Uh, and now Trump has been talking about this, and, and this is a place where I think there's an enormous opportunity for the president to refocus on an issue that has a lot of resonance, not just with his base, but with all Americans. Canada is looking at its immigrants as people who are going to have to contribute to the economy right away. And this means that Canadians are bringing in people who have a tremendously high number, a high percentage overall of uh, of uh, economic achievement, of academic achievement. Uh, they look at age, education, job skills, language ability. Uh, they pick people like they're picking an all-star team, and that's, be- and that's how they have a majority of the immigrants, 65% in 2015, were admitted just because they were, again, economic all-stars, so to speak. In our country, do you know what the number is? 10%, 10% of immigrants to America in 2015, I think was the year, um, were b- based on purely economic grounds. We are overwhelmingly a system that is premised on what they call uh, family reunification, which is really just a way of saying chain migration, i.e., 
if someone gets into America and becomes a permanent resident, they can then sponsor the rest of all of their family members, including some more distant family members, by the way, to come into the country, and they go to the front of the line. And so, by the way, if you are from a country, if you are uh, rather from a family where you have, you know, 15 immediate family members and one of them gets into America legally, that person can sponsor all the rest and they go to the front of the line, so to speak, in the immigration system. It's just insane when you look at the way we're doing things. Um, the the skills gap, by the way, between Canadians and their immigrants is very interesting because the immigrants have higher levels of education, higher levels of economic achievement. And I think that Americans would feel much better about the way their government approaches the immigration system if we knew that it was being done to benefit all people in this country already. The immigration system, without apology, without any... Uh, hesitation or prevarication, immigration should benefit Americans. Immigration is not a welfare system for the world. Immigration to America should not be viewed as the Earth's soup kitchen and a jobs program. But a lot of the time, we're not even talking about jobs that are contributing much to the economy. When you add in the benefits of those who are at the lower end of the wage scale for recent immigrants who don't speak English— is very likely they're going to take in much more than they put out in terms of the economy. So while you have, for example, open borders advocates at places like uh, Cato Institute, we'll talk about it's a think tank in D.C. that's really all about open borders. Uh, that's not the only thing, but they're very big on that. It's libertarian. Uh, they will say, oh, well, they increase uh, GDP, uh, GNP. You know, GNP will increase. Uh, and overall, that's true. But, but that's just like saying if there are more people in a place, then the population increases. I mean, of course, there'll be more economic activity with more people. But is that economic activity on net a drag or a benefit to the people that are already in the economy, right? So you, you look at Canada, and they're right to our north. They're really our closest ally. And culturally and in so many ways, the similarities are— Look, anyone from America can pretty much go live in Canada and, and feel at home and be happy, I think. You might be a little cold. You might have to play a little more hockey and love maple syrup a little bit more than you had before. But Canada is a very a very close cousin, close neighbor of the United States in every sense, literally and figuratively. And they have an immigration policy that we should mimic. We should be doing the same thing that the Canadians are doing. And when the activist groups and the community organizers and all the rest in this country start to scream that it's racist, that it's evil, it's vindictive, at least we can point and say, okay, so is Canada a racist country? Because Canada is full of immigrants. It's just full of college-educated, multilingual immigrants who are ready to rock as soon as they arrive in Canada. They are not charity cases, overwhelmingly. It's an important lesson for us on the immigration front. Um, so, uh, team, I uh, just thought that we should, you know, I really wish the Trump administration would take a longer look at immigration as an issue for them because uh, it rallied the base so much during the primary and, and during the general election, too. And Trump has been pretty quiet on it. We don't have a wall yet. We don't have uh, an immigration bill that's even being discussed. And I know they're bogged down with health care and I know they're bogged down with taxes coming after health care. I, I understand. I, I get all of that. 
But this is, a, this is a place where conservatives, where the right can win, can win on the merits of the argument, because it'll be very hard for the Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's of the world to stand up and say that we should be taking in overwhelmingly, predominantly charity cases as immigrants or chain migration, family, they call it family reunification because that's a way of saying, well, you don't want broken families, do you? Well, that just means that anybody who comes here gets to bring You're not admitting one immigrant from a impoverished third world country. You're admitting 15. You know, you're admitting however many uh, they can get to join them here, which is just not, you know, this isn't about being mean. It's not about making anyone feel bad. It's about a policy that will benefit the most Americans possible. And that's what we need on immigration. And Trump should be on this. And it's a very good piece in The New York Times from this foreign affairs editor on that, and I would uh, recommend it to you all. We should just take Canada's system and tweak it and do an American version of it, America style. Uh, All right, team, we've got a lot coming up in the next hour, including uh, algebra and National Junk Food Day. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Should colleges abolish algebra, at least community colleges? It's a question that NPR raised recently with a senior uh, California Community College system official. He's the chancellor, uh, Elie Ortiz Oakley, uh, or Eloy, rather, uh, Ortiz Oakley, and he was talking to NPR about how algebra is, well, the biggest point of failure in a lot of community college students' uh, academic lives. And so the case is, this is fascinating, and this mirrors a lot of the way higher education is going these days. People are graduating high school without basic algebra skills. Think about this. I mean, in a, in a relatively uh, decent high school curriculum, you're going to take algebra at least by your sophomore or junior year. Uh, so people are going through all four years of high school without algebra one, basic algebra. We're not talking about multivariable calculus. We're not talking about uh, geometry or even pre-calc. We're just talking about Algebra 1, and at community colleges, people can't do Algebra 1 in very large numbers. According to this NPR piece, 60% of those who are enrolled are required to take at least one math course, and nearly 80% in community colleges never complete that requirement. So this is a huge stumbling block. Now, the, the trend in higher education, of course, wherever there is a point of failure, is instead of saying... How are we getting to this point where students don't have the ability to do basic algebra? Uh, What's going on in our high school system? They come at it from the other end and say, well, you know, maybe we should just eliminate this requirement altogether. Maybe people don't need to be able to do algebra to function in their day-to-day lives. Now, I try to take this argument as seriously as possible and from as many different angles, pardon the geometry wordplay as possible, uh, because I was never somebody who was particularly good at or comfortable with math, or at least 
I, I was good at math and, until high school, and then quite honestly, I got a bit distracted and didn't study as hard as I should have and fell a bit behind in my math ability. But I never liked math. I was never somebody that was excited about math, and I, I actually remember having some pretty cold sweats uh, when I was in different math classes and found myself uh, in over my head. Um, but the reality here is that when you look at what the uh, chancellor of the California Community College System is suggesting, he's suggesting that they should just no longer require even this, a basic level of algebra for those who are graduating from community college. The, uh, the truth of, of this is, sure, you don't use algebra generally in your day-to-day life. I have not had to set up a quadratic equation uh, since high school. And I also managed to avoid taking math in college, which is unusual. But I went to a liberal arts college with no core curriculum, which was nice. Uh, But I I haven't had to use it in my day-to-day life. That's fair to say. But the same case could be made about any number of academic disciplines. It's it's unusual or unlikely that you will end up quoting Shakespeare in your day-to-day life. And quite honestly, if you do, people probably make fun of you a little bit uh, if you walk around. What a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. I don't think people are going to want to hang out with you more. So this raises questions then, of course, what is the purpose of an education? What's the purpose of education at the level of post-high school study? And if it's professional or vocational training, that's fine. And I I really do wish there would be less of a it's, it's stigma is too strong a word, but there's still a, 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 a social consensus of sorts that learning how to do a trade in your post-high school years as a form of education is not, that's not really the American dream. You want a, a four-year uh, undergraduate degree if possible. If not, you at least want to graduate from a community college program that's more of a generalist course of study. And I think that that's wrong-headed. I think that that needs to change because a lot of, particularly a lot of four-year undergraduate programs are just incredibly expensive uh, babysitting situations where you have young people who aren't studying, aren't taking anything seriously, aren't learning any particularly valuable skills, and they're taking out these enormous loans, 30, 40, 50, sometimes more like 150, but that's really crazy, but people do do that, $1,000 in order to complete this level of education. And I just think that when you look at what's going on in community colleges, it's really just symptomatic, the failures of people to be able to do algebra at a very basic level is symptomatic of the failures of the American, predominantly the American public high school system, and that they're pushing students through high school who can't do basic algebra is a concern instead of approaching this from the perspective of oh what can we do to make this easier on community college students i think the first focus should be why are people graduating high school without being able to do this pretty basic level of mathematics and you see of course in the discussion of this on on npr uh the in, the individual uh who's being asked the questions here immediately is, is pushed to talk about the social justice implications of this. Here's the question. Uh, rates of failure in algebra are higher for minority groups than they are for white students. Why do you think that is? 
Do you think a different curriculum would have less disparate results by ethnic or racial group? And here's the answer for the chancellor of community colleges in California. Quote, first of all, we've seen in the data from many of the pilots across the country that are using alternative math pathways that are just as rigorous as an algebra course. We've seen much greater success for students because many of these students can relate to these different kinds of math depending on which program of study they're in. They can see how it works in their daily life and how it's going to work in their career. Okay, before I get into the second part, that's the end of the quote. Before I get into the second part of his answer, let me tell you something. One of the reasons why the socially justice or social justice uh, minded left has problems with math is because math is objective. Math is not grading an essay. Math is not tell me your life story and let me send you to Harvard. Math is what it is. There are right answers and there are wrong answers. And it's very easy also to know whether someone has the right or the wrong answer. And there's really no room, there's no leeway. And so as objective academic criteria, and as we look at our society, which is at least academically supposed to be a meritocracy in some way, is trying to be a meritocracy, math poses a problem because if you have a disparate impact, so to speak, from math, meaning that minority groups are not doing as well, although it should be noted that based on the statistics and demographics, Asian Americans uh, overall do better in math than any other group. This is just a fact. This is just a reality. People can speak about that in sort of hushed tones for what I mean it's a it's a good thing obviously but people do get a little you know a little freaked out whenever you look at statistics in this way uh, but it, it is objective and when they start talking about alternative math pathways okay maybe finding math that's math problems that are a little more relatable there's room for that but I also think that what you're likely to see here the most likely scenario is that they will just try to make the math uh, simpler and they won't really push people to have the same level of achievement, but they'll call it the same level of achievement because of social justice, because they want uh, achievement parity between different ethnic and demographic groups in education. Back to this interview, Uh, this is what the chancellor says, the school chancellor for California Community Colleges. The second thing I'd say is yes, This is a civil rights issue, but this is also something that plagues all Americans, particularly low-income Americans. If you think about all the underemployed or unemployed Americans in this country who cannot connect to a job, uh, the biggest barrier for them is this algebra requirement. It's what has been kept them from achieving a credential. You see, again, this is thinking about this problem in the wrong way, thinking about the result instead of the process. Is the problem here that algebra is blocking people from getting a community college degree, an associate's degree? Or is the problem here that people going through community college or or, or entering community college can't do algebra? I I think you can make a very clear and obvious case that what this is telling us, this, this discussion over algebra and community college, is not that uh, the math requirement is onerous. It's too hard. And, and, and to say that math, I don't know, I mean, to say that math is racist, meaning that math somehow is, it's unfair to some racial or ethnic groups to have a math requirement. I know 
you say it out loud and it's like, does anyone make that argument? Well, in fact, yes, standardized tests are, are called racist all the time. Math requirements are called racist and unfair, socioeconomically disadvantaged. It's not just race, also socioeconomic disadvantage comes into the discussion. But really what we need here is a, a look at why are people graduating without this basic ability, graduating high school without basic math ability, and maybe a general degree in community college is not the path for everyone. Maybe more specific vocational professional training is. Uh, I, I just that's the way the discussion should go, not to view this as yet another cause for social justice warriors banning algebra. All right, team, we'll be back with much more. Uh, stay with me. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. The Islamic State has lost Mosul and is losing Raqqa, its capital in Syria. This is obviously good news for the anti-ISIS coalition, good news for the United States, good news for the entire world. But ISIS is as much an ideology as it is an organization. Dash, which is what it is in its Arabic acronym form, is something that has spread all over the world. With the help of the Internet, there are Dash affiliates far and wide. I'm not just talking about supporters and those who want to be part of the cyber jihad. I mean different groups that have either sprung up or have declared long-standing groups that have declared affiliation with ideological kinship and direct, when possible, organizational ties to the Islamic State. And they stretch from West Africa all the way to the Philippines. Now that ISIS and its caliphate are on the run and on the decline, we have to take a look at what the next most likely place is for a caliphate to spring up. Because the model has been established. We look at this and say, hold on a minute. There is the Islamic State getting its butt kicked in Iraq and Syria. Why would we not think that they're more or less on the ropes? Well, jihadists take a long narrative. And they view the success of ISIS in seizing Mosul, in seizing about a third of Iraq, and seizing a large piece of Syria as well, as evidence that a small band of determined mujahideen, a small band of holy warriors, can in fact defeat uh, conventional military forces on the ground, can seize and hold territory, and can administer a Sharia state. That's the lesson that many of the jihadists around the world have taken from this. Yes, they are going into an insurgency phase in Iraq and Syria. They will continue to try and mount casualties. They will be involved in fighting for months, if not years, to come. But the model in Iraq and Syria is going to be replicated, if they can, somewhere else in the world. And there are no shortage of opportunities for ISIS to declare, or rather, for the Islamic State in an ideological sense, because ISIS, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, is no longer able to hold territory like it was in the past. But somewhere else, there could be another caliphate established. It doesn't have to be very large. It doesn't have to be geographically important. But it will provide a clarion call for these uh, Islamist holy warriors all over the world. Uh, you look at the different groups that have popped up, 
You have, for example, Nigeria's Boko Haram. Boko Haram meaning Western education is forbidden. Uh, they are a horrific terrorist group operating in northern Nigeria, uh, and they have declared uh, that they are a, a part of, they're an affiliate of the Islamic State. You have Ansar Bayt al-Maqdis, which is the Islamic State's outpost in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. You have the Islamic State of Khorasan, which has popped up in Afghanistan. Uh, and you even have a group in the Philippines uh, that has claimed its allegiance to the Islamic State, Abu Sayyaf, which has been a long-known, well-established uh, jihadist group operating in the Philippines uh, on the island, in and around the island of Mindanao in the southern Philippines, uh, and also a group called Mate, which is named for two brothers who, according to the Guardian newspaper, were criminals uh, before they turned to armed insurrection. But so you have these jihadist offshoots in the Philippines, and they have tried to seize and hold territory, to take, uh, to take land away, to take control away from the government, because this is now going to be the, uh, the playbook for any group that is a part of or that subscribes to the Islamic State's ideology. It does not have to be very big. They don't have to have a lot of territory. If they can grab and hold any piece of territory, call it a caliphate, and create some Sharia governance there, then they can put out the call to other fighters around the world, and you see that they just continue to encourage this behavior. So, yes, the progress against the Islamic State is something that we are all, uh, all should be and are very pleased about, obviously, but that doesn't mean that ISIS is going away entirely. In fact, if you think back to the period during the Obama administration when the Islamic State had its jihadist blitzkrieg from Syria into Iraq, seizing Mosul, sending uh, Iraqi forces in the thousands, running away from the battlefield, in many cases without a shot fired, uh, that was not expected. That really came out of nowhere, and there have been, or at least from the perspective of the press and, and the Obama administration, there was really no preparation for that, no understanding of how dire the threat was. But when you look at the different places around the world, the different failed states or failing states, whether it's the Philippines, Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, uh, of course, Libya and the possibility of ISIS seizing more territory there, that's a very, uh, a very problematic situation for in terms of security and jihadism, by the way. We know that there was an ISIS affiliate that had about 100 miles of coastline in Libya for a period of time before a uh, militia was able to kick them out. And of course, the militias that replaced them are not exactly Jeffersonian Democrats that we can agree with on a whole bunch of issues. So you have the Islamic State's affiliate Boko Haram in Nigeria. You have in, in Mali, uh, jihadist fighters who, who could seize and hold territory. Uh, once again, you have ISIS entities in the Philippines, in Afghanistan. Uh, this is a truly global problem, and it's why having a strategy that takes not just uh, the previous actions of ISIS into account and continuing with successful operations, but trying to anticipate their next moves is so important. ISIS wants another caliphate. That's the next 
step in the process somewhere else in the world. And even if it only lasts for a few months, then they will, of course, try to set up a similar circumstance and take advantage of another weak state or weak governance in another part of the world. And they hope to create a jihadist momentum, and they, they're looking for their version of the Bolshevik Revolution. They're looking for a group of hardcore supporters that are only in the thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, who are able to throw a major state. And right now, we don't think about this as likely or possible, but it could be Saudi Arabia. It could be Pakistan. It could be one of these countries at some point in the future that falls to a group that is driven by ISIS ideology or that is linked to the Islamic State. And if that were to happen, the world overnight would become a very different and more dangerous place. So that's why keeping pressure on the Islamic State and focusing on these jihadists and refusing to give an inch and refusing to take our eye off the ball here is so important. And uh, that's the Buck Brief. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. When I first saw the headline, I wasn't sure that it was real, uh, but there really is a piece in the New York Times titled, Was That Racist? Question mark. And they have a number of different writers who weigh in on questionable cases of racism, at least questionable according to the authors uh, in question here, or the authors who are writing. So uh, in one instance, they cite how an African-American who was ordering a coffee, his name was Marques, and he had ordered a coffee, just a small coffee, which in Starbucks lingo is tall black. And so the barista, the preparer of coffee, yelled out in, in the midst of Starbucks, tall black Marcus, tall black Marcus. And for a moment, the writer said he was taken aback by this. Uh, by the way, taken aback is taken from nautical language and it has to do with a shift in wind that hits the sail and slows down dramatically the speed of the ship. Side note. Uh, but tall black Marcus, that's yelled out. Marcus, who is tall and black, uh, at first is annoyed by this and then realizes that it's just a just a coincidence, has nothing to do with anything. It's certainly not racist. Okay, I read that one. I thought, you know, that's actually amusing, and, and the guy seemed to have a, a, a sense, did have a sense of humor about it. And so, you know, no, no problem. And I'm figuring that maybe in this uh, New York Times piece, there might actually be more things like this that are uh, really gentle humor, if you will, at trying to poke fun at how people can have these kinds of interactions day to day and not necessarily think of them uh, as anything other than just, of course, the, a circumstance that can be construed as racist, but certainly is not once you think about it. Uh, but then they have a writer who I, I can read you the, most of the essay. I won't read it all. He writes the following. In New York, so much of my life consists of walking in and through crowds. I am, I think, a good walker. I don't dawdle, and even when walking at high speeds, I'm courteous, always willing to sway to one side, change speed in traffic, or even take wide berths around large, lost, child-toting, or otherwise compromised gaggles of pedestrians. Um, but, so there are many times in a day when a person is walking toward me and in my path. 
Almost always we shift our body weight or otherwise detour. Walking courteously doesn't take much. In seven years of living and walking here, I've found that most people walk courteously, but that white women, at least when I'm in their path, do not. Sometimes they're buried in their phones, other times they're in pairs and groups and in conversation, but often they're looking ahead through me, if not quite at me. When white women are in my path, they almost always continue straight, forcing me to one side without changing their course. This happens several times a day and a couple of times a week. White women force me off the sidewalk completely. In these instances, when I'm standing in the street or in the dirt as a white woman strides past, broad-shouldered and blissful, I turn furious. End quote. This is bizarre. Um, look, I've lived in New York City my whole life, and this phenomenon that he is discussing here of white women not getting out of the way. I mean, look, I, I can't speak to his personal experience, but first of all, New York sidewalks are incredibly congested. People are constantly angling and, and moving and hustling and bustling to get around each other. But this just makes no sense at all. Why would white women force him off the street, specifically white women? Uh, this guy strikes me as someone who just has gotten this in his head for whatever reason and now has a, a strange fixation and, and is seeing something that is not there. And this is one of the big discussions that often uh, opens up when we begin to look beyond the surface of just the most uh, sweeping accusations of racism. Is it really racism or is it a perception issue for the individual making the claim of racism? As in, does somebody assume that there is a racist intent when they see uh, a cab go past them in New York City? Or uh, is, the rea and is the reality, in fact, that the taxi was trying to make it back to the dispatch center? Because if they don't, they get fined $100 for the first hour. Uh, so that's often the case in New York City, is that people have talked about uh, cab drivers in New York as being racist, and there are these studies about how cabs won't pick up black men. I've actually looked into this, read uh, the, believe it or not, this is true, read the statistics and literature from the Taxi and Limousine Commission of New York City. And first of all, before you even get into the circumstances that involve cab drivers who are uh, allegedly not picking up black men because of racism, uh, you have to look at the makeup of the New York City cab fleet, the drivers of the cab fleet, and they are overwhelmingly uh, non-white. Uh, non uh, they are actually predominantly from the countries of India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. So South Asia is very disproportionately represented in the ranks of New York City cab drivers. Look, when I was in D.C., there were a lot of Somali and Ethiopian cab drivers. So depending on what city you're in, there are some groups that, for whatever reason, are disproportionately represented in the ranks of the cab drivers, which cab drivers are an honorable profession, providing a needed service, and that's all well and, and good. But it's interesting that whenever people talk about racism of New York City cab drivers, it's always assigned to white people, as in there, there must be white drivers that won't pick up uh, per, per, uh, particularly young black men in New York City, when you're actually talking about people from immigrants. From uh, By the way, that was an important part of this. They are 
uh, I believe over 70% of them are recent immigrants. So they are immigrants from South Asia who are driving a large percentage, over half, I think, of the cabs in the city. And yet it is always talked about as though this is an issue of uh, white racism in the city by people who just don't know anything. And then when you add into it the procedural issues and circumstances of New York City cabs, very few people realize that the cabs are actually rented. And I know I'm not trying to bore you for those of you who aren't from New York, but cabs are actually rented by the driver for the day. And if they don't get it back at a certain time, they have to pay a fine. So there's a tremendous rush. And stupidly, because of the scheduling of the city here, it's often right before rush hour that you have this problem. And so cabs won't pick people up. And it's just a question of the specific circumstance. Uh, And whenever they've done undercover They've actually done undercover work on this issue. Uh, it's never as as clear as people initially report it um, and when they say that it's racist and racism. But this guy writing for The New York Times, back to this piece, uh, stating that he thinks white women won't get out of the way for him on the sidewalk. I've just never heard anything like this. It just strikes me as as entirely implausible and quite strange. And it's interesting because he, at the bottom of his piece who is a writer for the Sunday Metropolitan section of the New York Times, he he puts the following down there. Uh, There have always been white women in my life, and I've counted them as friends and sisters, mothers and lovers. Whenever I ask white women, I know why they don't reroute for black men. They invariably express ignorance. Whenever that happens, another question always arises. Wait, am I crazy? But then I ask black men, invariably, they know what I'm talking about. Well, I've never heard this from anybody, um, so I, I... don't know what this guy is talking about at all. Uh, but moving on to the bottom of the piece here, a couple of weeks ago, I asked an Asian friend if he had the same experience of white women not getting out of his way. He said no. For whatever reason, white women see him just fine. The people he don't, he said, are white men. So do we really think that there's some strange street uh, procedural uh, street procedure issue here, street uh, manners? that are racial specific, that white men won't get out of the way for Asian men and that white women won't get out of the way for black men? Or do we think that this writer sees something that is not there? Do we think that the writer is, in fact, uh, perceiving something based upon his own experience for whatever reason that is not rooted in reality but is, in fact, just a function of, of his perception for whatever reason, that his perception is driven in this direction and that he thinks that he's being mistreated by white women on the street or that he's not being given the due courtesy. Look, everyone should be courteous uh, courteous to everyone else on the street always. In New York, it's not really the case. I've caught many an elbow here. I got hit in the head by a pigeon not too long ago. True story. Uh, I've had people throw things at me. I had somebody try to try to just like take a swat at me once for no reason. You know, the streets can be a crazy place in New York, but I don't think there's some racism problem here that the New York Times is trying to address. I just, I don't see it. Uh, We'll be back with National Junk Food Day talk in just a second, team. Stay with me. All right, team, before I send you off for your weekend, I I did want to take note of the fact that today is National Junk Food Day, and I'm sure you all have your favorites. Uh, I, because I'm a celiac, it actually means that there's not a whole lot of junk food that I can eat because a lot of it has uh, flour in it, obviously. Flour is a very cheap, abundant 
and shelf-stable ingredients. So you, you tend to get things like uh, Ho-Hos and uh, Twinkies and, and very glutinous uh, treats are usually what are offered up in, in the junk food aisle or things that are fried and breaded. So I, I can't actually eat that much junk food. Although growing up, I have to tell you, I had a few... Uh, I had a few weaknesses. One was for uh, blondies, which I guess isn't really a junk food, but I used to eat these packaged blondies, and I would drink Nestle Quick with them, which when you add it all together, it was probably about 80 grams of sugar or something insane like that. Uh, and I, I was a big chocolate milk drinker, which I still think chocolate milk is, is okay sometimes, uh, but I would drink chocolate milk with pretty much anything else, including Cheetos. That's right. I went through a Cheetos phase where... As a, as a kid in grammar school, I thought the Cheetos were absolutely delicious. So uh, today is National Junk Food Day, as I was saying. And I found this list of the what they what they call the worst uh, the worst foods for you in America on this blog. Uh, and they start with the overall worst meal that you can easily get somewhere. And it's the Carl Jr. Worst, by the way, could also mean the best if you're looking for an issue of taste here. But the Carl Jr. Uh, $6 guacamole bacon burger with medium natural cut fries and a 32-ounce Coke is over 1,800 calories with 92 grams of fat. Now, I'm sure it's absolutely delicious, but it doesn't sound like it's anything that's all that healthy for you. They have on this list of junk food, again, it's a worst best list because worst for you may mean it tastes the best. Like, I'm pretty sure I can't eat Cheetos anymore. But if I did, and I washed it all down with Nestle Quick, and maybe dunked some Oreos in some milk and ate those too, it would all taste delicious. So maybe it's the best. But Baskin Robbins large chocolate Oreo shake, which I see on this list, this is just a shake. The shake comes in at 2,600 calories. So, I mean, that's pretty fantastic. If you're looking for uh, high, high energy consumption, which is another way of looking at it, and 135 grams of fat in the Baskin-Robbins uh, shake. Outback Steakhouse baby back ribs on this list. For remember, we're doing National Junk Food Day. I'm not sure baby back ribs can be considered a junk food, really. I mean, what is technically, I guess, anything that's really high in calories and fat and not uh, particularly healthy can be considered junk food. But I think ribs and, and different, different meat products uh, shouldn't be considered junk food, really. But Outback Steakhouse baby back ribs come in at almost 2,600 calories just for the ribs, which is pretty, sub pretty substantial, I have to say. Uh, they also go into the uh, P.F. Chang lo mein combo for the worst Chinese dish for you on the junk food side, almost 2,000 calories. But, you know, the, what I always say to people about this, and not that I'm some food expert at all, but, you, know, you just got to pick your battles. I mean, sometimes you've had a long day and you want to just have that P.F. Chang lo mein combo. Or for me, it's more the real indulgence. Well, first of all, I eat dark chocolate and drink whole milk all the time, which I probably shouldn't do as much as I do, but that's my, I just allow myself to do that. So I drink whole milk, which is high in calories and fat, and I drink, and I eat a lot of dark chocolate, uh, which people say is good for you, but you know, it's probably good for you in like a square a day, and I probably eat like a third of a bar a day. But you know, some days you want a bacon cheeseburger, some days you want to just go wild and get some truffle fries, for example, and you just got to own it and do it and, and lean into it, if you will. So in a sense, National Junk Food Day is, is really just a celebration 
of eating whatever the heck you want and not worrying about the fact that there are always going to be people who tell you that you should be eating something other than what you feel like. Uh, there are going to be people who tell you that you have a social justice responsibility to eat different foods than what you want, that you shouldn't eat meat, for example, because of meat's carbon footprint, because uh, cows and uh, various forms of large-scale uh, farming and, uh, well, m meat processing and all, all that goes into that are just uh, damaging to the environment, they say. So you're supposed to stop eating meat. Well, that's just never going to happen. I'm trying to think of what the real... Like, if I was trying... If I was going to eat the unhealthiest... I mean, I can do a lot of damage at In-N-Out Burger. I'm an In-N-Out Burger fan, and I think that I could probably put away a couple of In-N-Out Burgers uh, covered with the double-double animal style which is with the onions and the sauce and everything. And also the, the fries at In-N-Out have always been a little disappointing to me, I have to be honest with you. And French fries should be absolutely delicious. That is one of my weaknesses, by the way. On the junk food, my top two are French fries and chocolate. So since, we're, since it's National Junk Food Day, I feel like I should just own, uh, own the reality of what I like to eat that's not good for me. And uh, French fries are very high on the list. I eat them all the time. So uh, you can let me know what your junk food uh, of choice is if you want. You can go to Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. You can either post there. We'll have a little post up so you can all tell me what, what your real indulgence is. Uh, or you can send a message if you're, if you're ashamed of your Twinkies or your Ho-Hos or uh, I'm trying to think of what other. Some people I know are just secretly addicted to Girl Scout cookies. Uh, other people are just complete, uh, completely go, go nuts for, I'm trying to remember the, the name of it now, and I actually can't even remember. Pringles, there you go. Those potato chips, you come in the tube, you can eat the whole thing of them. Anyway, you can let me know at facebook.com slash bucksexton. Also, by the way, please do go to bucksexton.com slash store. We have gear up there for your perusal and purchase, hats, T-shirts, all kinds of, uh, of great stuff for you to check out. Uh, as they come in, by the way, we would really love it if you wouldn't mind, those of you who are so inclined, you know, tweet out or post on Facebook a photo uh, of you with the gear, or at least you can just send the gear without you necessarily modeling it. But it's just fun for us to see people across the country uh, wearing either Shields High or, well, actually, we're working on that design. But Team Buck, uh, we've got Freedom Hut stuff, a Freedom Hut t-shirt, for example, would love it if you would uh, would be willing to share that on your social media profile. It's a great way to spread the word visually about the show. And uh, we continue to grow because of all you. To that end, please do also go on iTunes, type in Buck Sexton with America Now, click subscribe, and uh, definitely subscribe, even if you're a live listener to the show. If you have iTunes, uh, please do subscribe. The iHeart app allows you to listen anywhere across the country. Uh, all you need is cell phone or internet connection. Uh, so thank you, as always, for hanging out with me here, team. Hope you have a great weekend. I'm uh, heading upstate to go hang out with uh, cows and horses and donkeys and such and my family. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Excited to hang out with you all on Monday. Same time, same place. As always, Shields High. <laughs>